Good morning. Welcome to Axios Today. It's Tuesday, February 2nd. I'm Nyla Boodoo. Here's how we're making you smarter today. Is it constitutional to impeach a former president? Plus, the ominous sign when a country cuts its people off from the internet. But first, today's one big thing. President Biden's border challenges. President Joe Biden has vowed to reverse many of the immigration policies put in place by his predecessor. It's a process that could take months or even years, but he's starting with a number of executive orders that are expected today. Steph Kite covers immigration at Axios and is here to fill us in on Biden's plan. Steph, President Biden's facing a huge crisis at the border, which is largely caused by asylum seekers from Central America. Are we expecting an executive order around this? We're certainly going to see some executive actions, you know, today and throughout the week to address asylum and refugee policies in the U.S. One of the most notable ones was the Migration Protection Protocols, which most people know as Remain in Mexico policy. And that's one of the things we're definitely expecting Joe Biden to end. Joe Biden is trying to undo Donald Trump's policies. But at the same time, now we're looking at, for example, the number of unaccompanied minors at the border rising. And now there's a pandemic. So how is the Biden administration planning to handle this looming crisis of children at the border? We are starting to see the number of children crossing the border without their parents start to tick up. And when children cross the border, they're usually put in shelters run by HHS. But because of the coronavirus, those shelters have limited capacity. So the Biden administration is already moving toward opening a temporary facility in Texas. It also has the capacity to add the tent-like facilities we've seen in the past if the number of children continues to grow and HHS doesn't have anywhere else to put them. When we're thinking particularly the issue of unaccompanied minors at the border, Steph, this is a really thorny issue and can be very controversial. What are you hearing from inside the Biden administration about how they're trying to handle this, given the optics that are involved here? Yeah, I mean, this is a really sensitive issue, right? I think most people want to make sure that we're treating children well, even if they're crossing the border in a way that's not the right way to cross the border. But there's also logistical challenges. If you have a surge of kids coming across the border and you don't have anywhere to put them, I mean, your options are limited by law. But I think they are certainly concerned with how to do this in a way that is most compassionate to the kids and also doesn't make them look like hypocrites and following exactly what the Trump administration did. Steph Kite covers immigration for Axios. We'll be back in 15 seconds with Noah Feldman and the constitutionality of impeaching former President Trump. Welcome back to Axios Today. Lots of people have questions about whether or not it's unconstitutional and if there's any historical precedent to try former President Donald Trump for impeachment since he's no longer in office. With the Senate trial set to start in exactly a week, I thought I would pose this question to Axios Today's resident legal scholar, Harvard Law professor Noah Feldman. Hi, Noah. Hi, Nyla. Nice to be promoted to being a resident at Axios. Feels good. (laughs) Great. So there is legal precedent for this. We have to go back to Ulysses S. Grant's Secretary of War, William Belknap. What did we learn from his case? Belknap, who had actually been a Civil War hero, had, through his wife, been getting unlawful profits from somebody he made an appointment for. Minutes before he was about to be impeached on the floor of the House, he ran, literally, you can't make this stuff up, to the White House to resign. 
in the hopes that he would avoid the embarrassment of being impeached. But they impeached him anyway, and ultimately Belknap was not convicted by the Senate, with a lot of the people voting not to convict him, saying that their reason was not that they thought he wasn't guilty, but that they thought it shouldn't be possible to do it. So what you take away from all this is that has someone been impeached late and then tried in the Senate? Yes. Was that person convicted? No. Who's it up to? You guessed it. It's up to the Senate. The Senate gets to make up its own mind on this question. And as a constitutional law scholar, what will you be listening for from Trump's defense lawyers next week? I think there are three main defenses that are likely to be raised. And the first is the idea that even if Trump were guilty, it doesn't matter because it's unconstitutional to put him on trial. The second argument is based on free speech and the First Amendment. It's an argument that does have some value to it. We have a controlling case called Brandenburg against Ohio that says that to be convicted of incitement, your words have to be directed at inciting imminent lawless action and have to have been likely actually to do so. Someone could argue under this standard, if the president were criminally charged, that he didn't explicitly say that the Capitol should be breached, nor is it possible to prove definitively beyond a reasonable doubt in an ordinary criminal court that he intended to produce imminent lawless action. And if that's all true, then you probably couldn't convict Donald Trump in a criminal court of incitement. But this is not like a criminal court because it's the Senate that is doing this. Correct. And you're getting now to why I think this argument is wrong. What they'll say is, well, a high crime or misdemeanor is supposed to be a crime under the law. And if that's the case, they'll say you shouldn't convict Donald Trump. And then last but not least, you should watch for whether they're actually willing to come out and say that what he said in his speeches and what he did was fine. Because after all, the election was after all really, really stolen. How much of this, though, do you think is about proving a case versus making a political case? It's 99% about making the political case at this point. The question is whether Trump's lawyers think that the best way to make their political case is also to make the legal case. In my mind, the strategic value of the trial from Trump's perspective is to make sure that he is not convicted and then use that as the pivot. So the politics will come from the Senate vote that says he is not removed. You can find Noah Feldman on Deep Background, which is the podcast he hosts. Thanks, Noah. Thanks for having me. In 2021, it's not that the revolution will not be televised. More like this coup won't be tweeted. That was the case in Myanmar on Sunday, where the military took power in a coup after detaining Nobel laureate and political leader Aung San Suu Kyi. Dave Lawler is Axios' world editor, and he's noticed a trend of internet outages in situations like Myanmar. Dave, it used to be that television being cut was a sign of a military coup, but now is it the internet? Right. So I went back over the last two years from this organization called NetBlocks that tracks this stuff. And at least 35 countries have at some point or other either tried to shut down the internet or access to social media platforms. So this is a pattern that we've seen certainly in coups, but also tense election campaigns. Sometimes after terrorist attacks or times of chaos, they'll reach for the off switch or the closest they can find to the off switch for the internet. Dave, I think that People might think, okay, in a place like Iran or Venezuela, this might be a common occurrence. But it was interesting for me to see that you actually saw this has happened in places like India or Ethiopia. 
right? So India is one of the countries that's used this tool the most often, typically in response to protests. But in the case of their, you know, constitutional amendments in Kashmir, they actually, ahead of making those announcements, they shut off the internet to avert any unrest ahead of time. And so it's it's certainly not just, as you said, in coups and not just in authoritarian countries. And what does that mean when there are internet crackdowns, when we're thinking about for democracy or other freedom movements across the world? Countries will often say that they're making these decisions to stop disinformation from spreading. But just as often, it's a case where they don't want inconvenient information to get out so they can better control the narrative. If they're in control of access to the Internet, it makes it much more difficult to have your voice be heard. Dave Lawler writes the Axios World Newsletter. That's all we've got for you today. And I am going to be out for a few days, but don't worry, I'm leaving you in good hands. Erica Pandy will be sitting in for me on Wednesday and Thursday. I'm Nyla Boodoo. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, and we'll see you back here tomorrow morning.